hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Thinking Aloud About Film. Uh, it's our 21st uh, podcast on Hu Shen, though it's been a while since we've actually talked about a Hu Shen film. Uh, but today we are uh, talking about A City of Sadness, a winner of the Best Film Prize at the Venice uh, Film Festival, and considered by many to be one of Hu Shen's masterpieces. So, Richard, what did you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I thought it was it was great. Really, 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 really um, impressed. So let's let's go through the basic plot. So it's a historical drama. It's f- the first in a trilogy of historical dramas. It spans the years 1945 mm-hmm. to 1949, yes. I think. So it starts off with the the Japanese surrender and the Japanese occupiers leaving Taiwan. And it finishes with the KMT governments forming and imposing martial law on Taiwan. So it kind of spans from you start off with one set of occupiers leaving and you end with another set of occupiers um, occupying. And it, it tells you this story through the lens of this family. So, I mean, you know, to summarize the plot, would we'd be here all night, but it, it's, you know, a family, there are three brothers. Four. Well, there were four brothers, but 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 one is dead. Um, before the start of the film, one has died or is assumed to be dead. You know, one is a deaf photographer. One is a, a one is running a nightclub. Uh, one is a kind of petty criminal, um, and they they go through various things while being inter- intertwined with Taiwanese history. I would say. I think the important thing about the family is that. Uh, two of the children are drafted. One is lost, yeah, so presumed dead, and the other one returns with uh, psychological problems, like quite brutal psychological problems. Uh, And what's interesting and metaphoric about this family is that one by one, they all die off. I think the only one that survives is basically... uh, the one who returned from war with post-traumatic stress syndrome, then became a petty criminal, then was so badly beaten in jail that he returns to a quasi-vegetative state. And that's the only brother left. Yeah, all the all the others yeah. are lost. We're, we're not really selling this as a fun watch, well, are we? Well, <laughs> I hope we're selling it as an interesting watch, because, I mean, it's central to to what the film does, because the film is very metaphoric, really. Things are standing in for something else. And so each of the brothers represents something, right? And each of the brothers' relations represents something. I, in fact, you know, I keep uh, doing this with uh, some of Hu Shen's films, but I very much related it to, to my own family history. I, what you see in this film is people who've just finished a war, uh, in which things are very unstable, it's very unclear who's in power, what the rules are. In the meantime, there are shortages of everything, of food, of, and you know, people are involved in a kind of a black market or like gangsterism or yeah, kind of you know, people are having to do what they can to just kind of get by. And food is a constant preoccupation from the beginning of the film to the end of the film. This is not so far removed from what happened at the end of the Spanish Civil War. Though, of course, what's even more interesting about this film is that 
as you said at the beginning, Japanese occupation ends, but actually the Chinese Civil War continues, right? And uh, Taiwan was seen as an outpost through which to fight this war, but the war is lost. And then what you have is kind of martial law imposed on the newly won, in quotation marks, Taiwan, in which the, the Chinese exiles overtake all the power structures yeah, and impose them on the island at the expense of the local inhabitants, you know, and also the Japanese. And what's, what's interesting is that happens over such a long period. You know, it's for 45 to 49, right? So it's, it's not the, the Japanese leave and, and the KMT immediately invade. This happens over a very long period. Um, and and, the, and this, yeah, this is the story of that period. The other thing that's very interesting about that is that this was made, was it 1989? And so it's just after the end of martial law. So I mean, this, this martial law that's been imposed at the end of the film in 1949 carried on for the next 40 years, essentially. Um, and this film presumably couldn't have been made a few years earlier because it's implicitly critical right. of that government. And I think the other thing, just to connect it with what you've said that I found very interesting is that the film is released at the, at the moment of Tiananmen Square, right? And so the, 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 the Tiananmen Square incident is related to what we are not shown in the film, but which is what the film is about. So there was, yeah, yeah, there was this incident yeah. of a cigarette seller who was beaten to death, yeah, because cigarettes were seen as contraband. And then there were protests around it uh, and then there was the imposition of martial law uh, as a result of these protests. Uh, and 20,000, 10 to 20,000 indigenous people yeah, were, uh, were killed outright by those in power who at a moment in the film were really thought to be their side. Yeah, so I, you know, Taiwan, yeah, yeah? yeah. So this hopes of returning to the motherland, Taiwan to China after 50 years of Japanese occupation. Instead, it turned out the mainland killing off, you know, 10 to 20,000 of the indigenous population to kind of powerfully exert uh, force and power. Yeah. And, and this, I mean, so this, this event was, you know, known as the White Terror was you know, clearly a kind of pivotal moment in Taiwanese history. Um, at that point, uh, what's interesting is I, my my understanding of the film before watching it was that you know essentially this is a film about the White Terror. You know this 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 is what you're going to see, but actually because it's a Ho Shao Shen film, you, you sit that's off screen, right? So you, you mostly you hear you hear that through radio broadcasts, but also you see most of what you see of it. There's there's this repeated shot that he keeps coming to um, of in a hospital where the the shot is just from the top of some stairs, it's a shot of the doorway into the hospital and you see people coming in and out of it. And he returns to that shot on this night and you just see this, suddenly there's a crowd of people, you know, trying to get in to try and get help because they've all been injured in these riots. Um, and so I found that a, very, you know, a fascinating way of telling the story. There is an issue with that though, that he's talking about these really important events in Taiwanese history, but he's not explaining them because he doesn't need to because he's making this for a time when his audience we through the process we've been going through are very familiar with that and, and with that history and with that with that with what was going on it's quite i think it'd be quite difficult to engage with without that background. um i think there's that but i think the story by necessity has to be elliptical yeah so you know so so basically you're not told the story directly 
but everything you see is the effects of that. Yeah, kind of you're constantly seeing what the effects of that repression or you know are. Um, and I just think that, as you said, martial law had just ended a couple of years before the film was made, and as is my memory and understanding of you know the end of the dictatorship in Spain, is that is what they had what was called a pact of silence. Yeah, that basically nobody spoke about what had happened during the war. Because as soon as you begin to speak of it, like, it's, you killed my mother and you killed my father. You, know, you could never have any kind of unity or conciliation. Yeah, I mean, it was a civil war, right? So now it's beginning to be talked about and corpses disinterred. And yeah, so I don't know. I mean, this was in 1975. So, you know, what are we now? 50 years later, 45 years later. Yes, people are beginning to talk about it. And in fact, there's a, a kind of a demand to talk about it and to recognize what had happened and so on. But it's something that could not have been done in the first moment if the expectation was to create peace and, and you know, living together. Yeah, that which, that which is a good point because in certainly in Taiwan, I guess as to an extent was the case in, in, in Spain, um, the... You know the dictatorship or the martial law wasn't brought about. The end of it wasn't brought about through through violent protest. It was it, it was a, a kind of a peaceful transition. Yes, um, um, but I, I suppose the other thing I want to add is that the film is so powerful and its way of telling that story elliptically is so powerful that it's, it it wasn't just uh, a way a metaphoric way of understanding Tiananmen Square, that people appropriated it, yeah, as, you know, but also what is happening currently in Hong Kong, yeah? So, you know, the situation in Hong Kong is also being read through the lens of this film, yeah, or, or this film's account of, you know, that period uh, from 1945 to 1949 uh, in Taiwan, which I think, you know, so I, it's, it's, it's one of those films that, acts almost as a kind of um, a prism, yeah, through which kind of, you know, different events can be uh, understood better, yeah, or, or a ref a reflected and understood better, which I think, you know, is part of the, the, the power that the film has. Let me change the subject slightly, because, you know, we have been watching a lot of Edward Yang films, uh, and before that we watched a lot of Shaheen films, and I was really struck by what I see as a kind of an interesting resemblance to Shaheen. Yeah, so which is, you know, the carefulness with which the compositions, you know, and the movement through space uh, are done. Edward Yang, who is equally adept, yeah, so, you know, he always has very careful compositions as well, but often they're very flat, yeah, they're very head on. Right, and actually, what the what his images evoke is a kind of anime or or anonymity and anime, yeah, kind of you know shots of you know people in a window in a huge high rise or you know that kind of thing, right? Uh, whereas, you know, these in uh, um, a city of sadness, to me, kind of evoke Shaheen in a way. I mean, what do you think? I didn't think think of Shaheen particularly, but I did think that, you know, just the marshalling of huge numbers of people in, in, in the space and, you know, with the, the scene at the beginning in the, with the family in the house where the child's just been born and, and 
you know people are kind of people keep walking towards the camera and out of the room and things like that and it's just very, with different layers of people and the action going on in the background that was, was really really, yes. really i mean done. that's in what it reminds me of shaheen that it has almost that circian thing of frames within frames within frames yeah that shaheen also deploys yeah which create yeah. kind of uh, different depths of action. So something is happening in the foreground, something is happening in the middle ground, but maybe on the left, and then something is happening in the background, maybe through a screen in the right, yeah? I mean, he even does this in open shots. So there's a wonderful shot where they're going into the hospital, you know, and you're just seeing kind of, you know, two people walk up with a suitcase or something. You know, and then, you you know, you they trot and trot and trot, and your eye wanders to the mountains and the ocean and a landscape that is becoming very familiar to us, right? And then the camera pans, and you're almost in a mid, you know, mid close-up of other people, yeah, kind of going through the path at another level and talking. Again, here an example of layers of action that are happening, you know, across diagonally across the frame, yeah. Th that reminded me very much of things Shaheen would do. But unlike Shaheen, what Hu Shen does and I think you pointed this out the last time we talked about him, is he returns to the scene, and he returns through exactly the same shot, right? Yeah, which I yeah, think... Yeah, so the, yeah, particularly the one, of the, yeah, the one in the hospital is really noticeable that you always see it from that same angle. He does the same in the family house. He does the same in the bar. You, know, you, you always know you're back in the same space. And the other thing, because I was reading what Mark Cousins says about this film in story of film uh, because it, this is the one Ho Shashen film he talks about at, at length uh, and he says one thing which I violently disagree with which I'll come to in a moment uh, because it's fundamentally <laughs> wrong <laughs> Mark, I, I'm going to slam Mark Cousins for his wrongness um, but in, in general I do agree with what he says so what's immediately striking is that like Terence Davis's Distant Voices Still Lives it uses long held shots to enact remembering unlike Davis the shots are usually static the film lasts 158 minutes and contains only 222 cuts, meaning the average shot length is 43 seconds. So it's kind of the, the, this very, very long held thing. And then he does also talk about, um, yeah, every time he returns to the hospital, Ho shoots from exactly the same angle. There's no variety. There's no reverse shots, no alternative shots. In his spare conception of cinema, there's only one way to film a place. Or rather, since these are films about remembering, places and visual memories of them are the same thing. So, I think that's... And so what aspect do you disagree with? I finally disagree with this bit. So he, he talks about, he says, um, setting those crucial four years between 1945 and 1949, it uses the family as the lens through which to picture the complexity of life on the island and the birth of the modern Taiwanese nation. Fine, blah, blah, blah. Then he says... Ho's family had emigrated to Taiwan in 1948, and this film, like most of his others, is autobiographical. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's absolute bullshit. Because yeah, because basically, it like for a start, whose family, whose family had emigrated in, to Taiwan in 1948? Okay, so like after the events of the film, whose family were mainland Chinese? Yeah, they were they were Mandarin speakers. The whole point of this film is the family are native Taiwan, right. Taiwanese. This is like the this is like the 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 antithesis of the family in time to die, right? Who are part yeah, of the occupying? Yeah, someone who was part of the occupying culture is actually showing what the effect of people like his family migrating had on the indigenous yeah, population. Yeah, yeah. But that that then brings me to another thought, which is. Again, as we talked about with um, with terrorizers, where we were missing out on the fact that there were multiple different languages being spoken, there clearly are in this one too, because the 
you know, the central family are not, or we assume they're not speaking Mandarin, they must be speaking the Taiwanese language. There are then scenes where, you know, there'll be a Mandarin speaker and someone is translating between the Mandarin and, and, and the Taiwanese. Um, there are scenes with Japanese speakers. Then also, the, I mean, interestingly, the, the, the central figure, the, the, the deaf brother is played, played by is it Tony, Tony, Tony Leung. He, yeah, he's, he's from Hong Kong. It doesn't matter that he can't speak Taiwanese because his character, his character doesn't actually speak. I mean, there's a scene on a train where he is attacked by some native Taiwanese um, because they, they want him to prove that he's not a mainland Chinese person. They, they're trying to, you're a Mandarin speaker, aren't you? And of course he can't speak, so he can't prove what he is. Um, but yeah, so this, this whole thing about language is clearly very important and it's a whole it's a whole layer that we're missing out. I, I want to say two things about that. First, that it's a fault of the distributors that this is any problem at all, because that could be so clearly indicated in the subtitling, right? Clearly, it's it's a hugely important aspect of um, of Taiwanese culture, as with Spain. Um, you know, the official language was 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 Mandarin, and I think there was an extent to which you know, using the Taiwanese language in in, in official settings or in culture in films yeah. was, was not allowed so, um, much yeah, like with, exactly. with Catalan um, or with any other of the sta uh, of you know uh, Galicians have their own language and the Basques have their own language and uh, Valencianos have their own language etc so um, it is very much a kind of a feature of occupying uh, uh, armies um, the other point that I wanted to make in relation to language is that it's hinted at because of the thing that you mentioned that there will often be scenes in a film where translation will be called for where you know you weren't aware that people were speaking different languages until that point um, so the thing about language is an important one the thing about being mute is yeah an equally important thing right so um my understanding is that tony the tony leung character had lines but then obviously had to be removed because he, of the way he sounded, yeah? Uh, right, you know, because right, Because basically okay. the language that he spoke was Mandarin, yeah? <laughs> so I, it would be the opposite of what the role called for. And so a way of overcoming that problem was to make him mute. Um, but then that takes on all the symbolic power, right? Because you know, this is a culture that then is rendered mute, that cannot speak, uh, disabled, you know, by uh, an occupying army. Yeah, I, I really like the way he used, I mean, he used, basically uses silent film style intertitles for the information that, so Tony Leon's character will sometimes be writing notes to people or they'll be writing notes back to him. And that's always conveyed, it's not conveyed using intertitles rather than subtitles. And there's this whole lengthy scene with, Tony Leung and his love interests sort of exchanging notes with with intertitles and it's I mean it, yeah, it, it yeah, is like silent cinema and, I thought that was very uh, interesting yeah. uh, the, because there's something poetic about silent cinema I think yeah about the way that silent cinema has to express yeah and, it, and it's clearly deliberate because it, it, that's yeah, it's clearly deliberately evoking that because it's, it's you know it's a black screen with a with a, with a nice font mm. of the, on the yeah, and the intertitles and so aren't just words or sentences they're very much like poetry, <laughs> a lot, a lot of, a lot of the time, anyway. Uh, so you know, it has that added kind of metaphoric uh, layer. Yeah, and his his casting is interesting because, as far as I can see, looking at IMDb, up to that point, he was pretty much working in like commercial, very commercial 
like kung fu type TV and you know, martial arts film and TV shows in Hong Kong. Um, and this was this look. I, I don't know. It just kind of just looking at the titles of the things he was doing up to then, and the and the posters. It, it, that appears to be the case that this was his first sort of serious dramatic role. That then presumably is what led to the his his later I career. I mean, I think you can see that this has a very different budget to anything by him that we've seen before. Um, I think we have to remember that you know Tony Leung was a big Hong Kong star. Yeah, which means he was a big star of East Asian cinema, period. Uh, and not only that, but I think he's a very great actor. And you could see what he brings to this film, yeah? I mean, A, he's very charismatic, and uh, B, he's very expressive, yeah? So, you know, and he needs to be if he's going to be playing a mute. So, so... Yeah, um, yeah. I also liked many... I liked the older brother, yeah, the one who runs, you know, the restaurant and the... And the nightclub or whatever it is um you know i thought he was also kind of powerful i loved the father right so um this is you can see how um performances are getting better and deeper yeah because the father was the um the same guy from daughter of the nile and dust in the wind i think the who, who, who is then i think the next film is the puppet master which is based on his life story but i think this is the first film where he didn't use post-sync ah. dialogue um and the, the reason being the reason he started recording the, the dialogue on set was because of the guy who the, the the father was always improvising and so they and they could never remember what he'd said so um that that's he then just started recording mm. all the dialogue on um, well um so, yeah. you can see yeah the work with with actors and it's superb but i think what remains for me most is when you were reading that quote I think you, what you do see, or what I noticed anyway, I mean, I, you know, I thought this before I heard your quote, was that, yes, he had found the perfect shot, the perfect place to put the camera, the only place to put the camera. Right? <laughs> you can't imagine anything being so, so any, any, anything else being so great. I mean, those scenes outside the whorehouse, yeah, you know, that it's on a hill, right? And so, and you have opposite... Um, uh, businesses, yeah, they might, both might be whorehouses or whatever, but they're opposite each other. They both have the red thing, and people are coming and going. And then you know, there's another layer behind that where people are sitting down to eat a meal, and there's another layer behind that where people are are walking up and down the hill. I mean, you know, where else are you going to put a camera that can give you that, right? And there's always somebody coming in or going out of the doorways or. You know, it's it's like full of life, yeah? It clearly is an artistic choice, and it's an artistic choice that works brilliantly. But also, it must help with the budget, because if you've only got to point the camera in one direction, you haven't got to worry about what everything I, else looks maybe, like. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> you know, I mean, it would help the budget if you do it badly, and if you just do one take. But actually, if you're timing precisely when the actors are coming in and out, where they stand up or don't stand up, right? Because, and you get the sense that that's been done, because... You know, your eyes drawn to something in the foreground, and then something in the background happens. Yeah, and then something in the depth. So you know, it's not all happening simultaneously, pell mell. So actually, if you've got to rehearse the actors and you've got to rehearse the lights and the camera, so that all of those things happen precisely, that's not necessarily cheaper. I mean, you know, it could be, but it's not. I mean, Orson Welles would say often that you know he would design these very complex shots and you know kind of 
the producer would be after him because it was like the second day and they hadn't shot a, you know one page of script you know and then of course on the third day he'd have shot 20 pages yeah well maybe right you know i mean he was never famous for being on budget anyway right but <laughs> you know yeah it could go either way it's not necessarily the cheapest way of filming something if you take the trouble yeah, yeah. to make it meaningful um, but i just thought it was the perfect shot so what do you think of this obviously we, we've spent like the last it feels like about three years watching 153 non-Hoshashen <laughs> films in order to get some context between the, the previous Hoshashen film and this one I mean I, I think I'm really glad we did that and I think there's there's a few interesting things there firstly the watching those um, uh, early Taiwanese language films that, that were put online um, really I think taught us a lot more about that side of the culture and, and gave us that understanding of, of, of those different cultures and those, those different languages that we perhaps wouldn't have been aware of, which I think is key to this film. But it's interesting also, I think, to compare the this with the, yes. the Edward Yang films. So The Terrorizers was made three years before this one. Um, and I mean, I think we talked about this in a previous, in the Taipei Story podcast, that what Mark Cousins says about Taiwanese cinema the Taiwanese New Wave Cinema is, he says, you know, the most notable directors were Edward Yang and Ho Xiao Shen, the more interesting of which was Ho Xiao Shen, and then he forgets Edward Yang. And I still think that's unfair to dismiss Edward Yang like that, but I do think this is a far more interesting, far more complex film than The Terrorizers, and stayed with yes, me a lot more, I, I think. I suppose what I feel is that for me, you know, Ho Xiao Shen is so far at any rate by far the greater filmmaker partly it's a personal thing it's constantly reminding me of, of me <laughs> right i mean i feel identified <laughs> with it in a way that you wouldn't think is possible right you know to identify with something that's happening like on the other side of the globe at a different period you know in different languages you know but i i am constantly i i get i feel that uh hu xiao shen gives you films about life <laughs> that er that everybody can identify with. Uh, I, yeah, I think that's right, because I, I think, this, as I said at the start, you, you know, it's focusing on this period of Taiwanese history that, that the vast majority of people outside Taiwan or outside Taiwan and China and Japan won't know about. Um, but actually, it sort of doesn't matter because you you're so engrossed in the film and the way it's told again with as with all these films we've been talking about this kind of mosaic of information where you have to sort of piece it together in your head afterwards and it doesn't really and sometimes it doesn't really i mean i start of the film it's like well okay how many brothers are there why are they telling us about this one in shanghai who's not going to appear why who's this guy what you know what's what's going on here um <clears throat> i mean there's this long sequence at the beginning about a baby being born you know, never you never really see the baby again, and it, it, but it it just all works and it just all layers upon layers, and it and it, it it's comp I mean, it's two and a half hours, but it just mm. sort of you know flew by. Yes, for me. and actually, the thing about the baby, it does have a point because you know the baby is given the name of light, and all you see subsequently is darkness and death. Yeah, so uh, it's not without a point. I mean, I think the thing about Hu Shen is that. You know, you're not watching your story, <laughs> right? But but he makes you feel like it is your story. And actually, what the end result is that the work 
helps you understand your story better. <laughs> yeah, so it somehow becomes kind of yours. I mean, you know, I definitely felt, you know, that it is about a city and it is about sadness, you know, and it is about kind of, you know, a family, but that is a me metaphor for a nation. And it actually could be a metaphor for other nations. I mean, Britain in the war wasn't occupied, you know, but those things of, you know, and there's, of course, a narrative, you know, of everybody going with, you know, their uh, 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 booklet to get whatever was allotted to them. But, you know, but we know there was a lot of black market activity and, you know, yeah. And and had there been more uncertainty, you know, it would, there would have been even more of that. Certainly we know in, in Paris that that was very much the case. You know, this, so this story is one about, you know, uh, an occupied people, a people that is occupied by who they think are their own people, but end up actually being, you know, just uh, nastier and more murderous, you know, than the invading army that has come before. It is about kind of what people do to get by, except that actually the whole family has no way out. And slowly each of the members crumbles, you know, either emotionally or through external force. Um, it ends, the last image with the baby, you know, and the, and the mute photographer who can't speak, you know, but who somehow manages to convey through, through writing and through images, which of course is cinema in many ways. There's a family picture, and of course the aftermath is he disappears from the picture. So actually, that is also a metaphor for all the family unraveling. So it's very beautiful, and it all ties, ties together, yeah? I want to speculate a little bit more about this trope of the deaf-mute who can only express himself through writing or through photography. I mean, I have mixed feelings because, of course, on the one hand, you could argue that the film says that what remains is, you know, this archaeology of, of images and words, yeah, that are only partial, yeah, kind of, you know, like that thing where the uh, person who's been shot leaves the message to his family, you need not walk with shame, I'm innocent, or something like that. Uh, so, you know, but if somebody comes across that and just sees that, what, what does that mean, right? So, so in fact, it, you need something to bring all of those things together. But the film, I think, complicates that because some of the images that you see Tony Leung do, he's always retouching. Yeah, the image is never natural. Yeah, like it's never the shot that he takes. There's also a process of doctoring after, of you know, shaping. Of, yeah, so that yeah, it doesn't come to you raw. <laughs> it's always shaped. You know, so so I don't know. I, I mean, I don't quite know what to make of it, but I think those things kind of are purposeful. They're patterned, yeah. They're, they're, they become part of the film, yeah. The muteness goes along with the writing, goes along with the retouching, yeah. Goes along with him being a chain of brothers who ends up being killed, yeah. These are all patterns of things, really. Uh, so, so it's very purposeful, and I think it's very meaningful, though. You know what the director intended, and so on. I'm not clear yet. Just thinking of a touch of Zen, yes, which the. Um, the King Who film, where the central character is the artist living at home with his mother who paints pictures of people, paints portraits of people. And I'm just kind of ah, thinking of that connection. I think that's, yeah, mm. that's, that's interesting. I mean, I think it's interesting to, to contrast now with Edward Yang's films, right? Because to me, Edward Yang's films always seem, and this is not to put them down, I love them and I also think they're great works, 
but they seem much more self-consciously artsy and international. I, I, I think I see a real uh, distance between Hu's concerns and Yang's concerns. And I think Hu's concerns are about history and society and life. And uh, uh, Yang's concerns are about, you know, art and alienation and, yeah, urban life, yeah. Um, so far, anyway, yeah. So far, I think, because um, obviously we'll come to A Brighter Summer Day at some point, and, and that, that I think, is reflects more of the kind of Ho Shan concerns of you know, the wider society and history than, than Edward Yang's traditional concerns that we're talking about. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it, I think it's an interesting comparison. Uh, and I think the, uh, you're, you're probably right that, that, that Yang was making these films, hoping aimed at a festival audience. I mean, Yang had mm. lived in America. I've been trained uh, again, in America. An interesting comparison with, Sh with Shaheen. I, I also loved all those films that we saw in the 1960s. Um, and you mentioned A Touch of Zen. Um, but I think in, in that sense, both Yang and Hu um, stand out because, you know, they're clearly doing something very different. Though who stands out the most because, and this I think has to do with traces of Western cinema. So, for example, a lot of the 1960s films that we saw were adaptations. There was clearly Rebecca meets whatever, right? Or Sergio Leone in China, right? Or, yeah. Uh, and actually, you... You could imagine Edward Yang making, you know, uh, the terrorizers set in New York. Yeah, and the themes and so on wouldn't be any different. The dialogue wouldn't be any Yeah, you could set that in New York and not feel that it's out of place. Well, actually, I think whose films are so much about Taiwan. Like, I, I mean, so they resonate with me. They have a universal appeal. But it's almost like you can't imagine them being done anywhere else. I mean, I... Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because Taipei Story also, you know, could have been made yeah. in America, really. There's nothing uniquely Taiwanese uh -huh. about it. So anyway, so that's my thinking at the moment, really. So uh, a very great film, uh, a film to return to, I think, and a film I enjoyed very much and I highly recommend. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, we're thinking a lot about film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. Bye. Bye. Bye.